the ex-worker. An audio strike against a monotone world. A twice-monthly podcast of anarchist ideas and action for everyone who dreams of a life off the clock. Welcome back to another episode of The Ex-Worker. In our 38th episode, we are offering a profile of anarchist organizing in Lake Worth, Florida. We'll share interviews with discussions of the Earth First Journal, prison legal news, immigrant solidarity organizing, a prison books project and an info shop, and even an anarchist elected official. We've also got listener feedback on Silk Road and Ross Ulbricht, a Crime Think tour announcement, plenty of news, a June 11th solidarity song, appeals for support and announcements, and plenty more. My name is Alanis, and I'll be your host. Don't forget to check out our website, crimethink.com slash podcast, for a full transcript of the show, along with plenty of links and additional info. Also, please send us a message to podcast at crimethink.com with any feedback, suggestions, or contributions. All right, let's get started. things off with the hot wire news of revolt rebellion repression and resistance from across the globe supporters of kansas anarchist prisoner eric king have announced that eric's federal trial has been scheduled for october 26th and have described his struggle to get decent medical care and vegan food from the segregation unit where he's housed in cca leavenworth you can get updates at support a crew of about 40 anarchists infiltrated a 5,000-person right-wing demo in Athens, Greece, and burned several EU flags before all being arrested by riot police. Wow, that's gutsy. An attempted raid by a snatch squad from the UK's home office against migrants in London met fierce resistance when word of the raid spread rapidly over social media. Angry migrants and local teenagers blockaded the home office van, slashing its tires and pelting it with rotting vegetables, fighting riot police and building barricades to interfere with the kidnapping. Although the riot squad did manage to take the person, tensions continue to simmer as the state now knows it cannot kidnap migrants with impunity. Russian anarchist political prisoner Ilya Romanov has had court hearings this month on charges of supposedly planning a terrorist attack that never happened and attempting to justify terrorism for allegedly giving an interview to some anarchists in Ukraine. It's difficult to get information on the case, but stay posted to the Moscow Anarchist Black Cross for updates. Swedish animal liberation prisoners Karl Hagroth and Ebba Olausen have just been released. They had served the last year in prison for direct actions taken against the fur industry. Welcome home, Karl and Ebba. Meanwhile, as many as 1,600 mink were released from cages at the Glenwood Fur Farm in St. Mary's, Ontario, late on May 30th. And in solidarity, the Animal Liberation Front took credit for torching two trucks in Mississauga, Ontario, belonging to Harlan Laboratories, a company owned by Huntington Life Sciences that supplies animals for vivisection. 
and animal rights activist Amber Canavan will spend the month of July in jail for rescuing two ducks from a foie gras facility and documenting the horrific torture of animals going on there, while refusing to snitch on the other activists who participated in the raid. We'll post her mailing address when we know it, and a link with more info on her case. In Hanikivi, Finland, a digger was sabotaged on the construction site of the planned Fenovoimas nuclear power plant. Cables and wires were cut and the windows were smashed in defiance of the environmentally destructive and oppressive project. Remember that image from the Getsy Park resistance of 2013 of the cop tear-gassing the woman in the red dress that made the rounds on social media and sort of visually summed up the repressiveness of the Turkish state? Well, the state has decided to make an example of that particular cop, hoping to diffuse popular anger against police violence by making it out to be a few bad apples. Sound familiar? Well, it turns out that the cop in question from that photograph, Fatih Zengin, has been sentenced by a Turkish court to plant 600 trees and tend them for six months. Hmm. Justice? Of course, the lady in red was one of over 8,000 people who were injured by police during the uprising, and their attackers remain employed in the apparatus of repression, regardless of how many trees one of their co-workers is ordered to plant. A district court judge ordered the release of 68-year-old former Black Panther Albert Woodfox, the last remaining incarcerated member of the Angola Three, who has been in solitary confinement for over 40 years. Then, an appeals court issued an emergency stay blocking his release. He's still in prison. Jesus fucking Christ, Louisiana, will you just let this man be free? Meanwhile, prisoners are rebelling around the world. In French Guiana, nearly 200 inmates mutinied for a second day, refusing to return to their cells and protest against disgusting and boring conditions. While in Trinidad and Tobago, a group of inmates from the Golden Grove prison rioted, injuring at least five guards and barricading themselves in for protection against the riot squad. And prisoners in Beirut, Lebanon rioted days after leaked footage emerged of guards beating and torturing inmates. Thousands of protesters marched in Armenia against planned increases in electricity prices and were attacked by riot police with water cannons. Anti-government protests in the East African nation of Burundi have become increasingly violent, with at least 77 killed, hundreds wounded, and a thousand arrested in the last two months in demonstrations opposing the current president's efforts to change electoral regulations to allow himself to stay in power. And in Accra, Ghana, riot police tear-gassed thousands of rebellious residents of a slum popularly known as Sodom and Gomorrah, who are attempting to thwart government plans to destroy their housing. High school students in Mount Hagen, Papua New Guinea, rioted after the death of a student in a hit-and-run accident. The new Ukrainian government that came to power in the aftermath of the Maidan struggle has passed a package of controversial decommunization laws, which include criminalizing, quote, public denial of the criminal nature of the communist totalitarian regime from 1917 to 1991, as well as renaming lots of streets and towns named after Bolshevik figures and publicly honoring World War II era nationalists, including followers of Stephen Bandera, who briefly allied with the Nazis and participated in ethnic massacres. The laws play on the reactionary nationalism and anti-Russian polarization that characterize the new regime and may provide an additional legal basis for repression of leftists. Of course, we're not sympathetic to the communist or Russia-aligned past of Ukraine, 
It's precisely that binary that attempts to force Ukrainians to choose between one of two repressive megaliths that anarchists in the region have condemned in attempting to articulate anti-capitalist and anti-state alternatives to both reactionary nationalism and Russian domination. Arsonists did serious damage to a green technology business center under construction in Brussels, Belgium, a project of the notorious prison profiteer construction company BAM. And we found a fascinating article recently on defensetech.org, a military industry website that is not exactly one of our most common sources for hotwire news, but this one made our heads turn. Recently, an Islamic State fighter posted a selfie of him standing in front of an ISIS command headquarters building somewhere in Syria. An Air Force intelligence unit in Florida monitoring ISIS on social media, using nothing but the picture in conjunction with comments on an online forum, were able to calibrate a targeted smart bomb strike the following day that obliterated the building. As Air Force General Hawk Carlisle apparently that's his actual name, was quoted as saying, it was a post on social media to bombs on target in less than 24 hours. Incredible work when you think about it. Obviously, we at the ex-worker are not shedding any tears over the destruction of any part of ISIS's ability to operate. But all of us in radical movements who have still not gotten the security significance of social media postings through our heads should pay close attention to things like this. The U.S. government has already used drones to kill U.S. citizens in Yemen and to surveil people inside the U.S. We now have confirmation that the technological capacity to target and kill us based on our selfies exists. The only thing lacking is the political will on the part of our enemies. So let's continue to take social media security culture very seriously. celebrate this year's June 11th, the International Day of Solidarity with Marius Mason and all long-term anarchist prisoners. Fortunately, Eric McDavid was released this past January. Yet Marius remains behind bars, courageously undertaking gender transition in a hostile environment while remaining dedicated to anarchist and ecological struggle. This year, solidarity events took place in over 30 cities across the U.S. as well as in Canada, Spain, France, Italy, Greece, and Israel. The music you're hearing comes from Sprank, a political folk band from the Netherlands, who wrote this song and produced the video underneath it in solidarity with Marius Mason. We've just received word that Marius has been placed in solitary confinement for 30 days. Please check out his website, supportmariusmason.org, for updates and for his current mailing address. To change everything. An anarchist. 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 An anarchist appeal. Before we move on to listener feedback, we want to share a special announcement from our fellow CrimeThink ex-workers about an exciting opportunity coming up this fall. This announcement just appeared in our inboxes and on the CrimeThink blog. 
We are organizing a U.S. tour for this September and October, including anarchists from the groups that have produced versions of To Change Everything in Latin America, Eastern Europe, and the Balkans, as well as North America. Together, they will present a panel discussion, comparing experiences from the recent global wave of uprisings and exploring the significance of anarchism in the 21st century. We're excited to facilitate this exchange of perspectives across different continents and struggles in hopes of helping to foster more global connections and solidarity. But we need your help. If you are able to host an event, please contact us at rollingthunder at crimethink.com. We're especially interested in setting up events outside the usual venues. We would love to hear from student groups, community centers, and anyone else with a good idea. Here's a description of the presentation. To Change Everything, Anarchism and the New Social Movements, an international panel discussion. This panel brings together organizers from Latin America, Eastern Europe, the Balkans, and North America to discuss the significance of anarchist ideas and tactics in the 21st century. The participants will compare experiences from the wave of protests and uprisings that has swept the world since 2010, exploring the role of demand-based politics in both catalyzing and limiting movements, examining a variety of forms of repression, and critically evaluating experiments with direct democracy. They will conclude by assessing the prospects for contemporary struggles for self-determination in an era of globalized capitalism and state control. All of the presenters are contributors to a recent outreach and dialogue project, To Change Everything, which appeared earlier this year in over 20 languages. Which most of you have heard an audio version of if you caught episode 35 last month. If you're listening somewhere in the U.S., don't miss an opportunity to have an international crew of dedicated anarchists come expand on those themes in your town. And if you live in a small town or somewhere off the beaten path, don't hesitate to get in touch. The tour hopes to reach a lot of different places, including ones that aren't already hotspots for anarchist agitation. So again, send an email to rollingthunder at crimethink.com and let them know if you're interested in setting up an event. All right, now let's get into our listener feedback. First, I wanted to let folks know that we got some great responses to our episode on Rojava. We want to give those a little extra space and pair them with a follow-up interview in a more in-depth discussion, so we'll hold off on replying to those for now. But please know that we appreciated your thoughts, and we're eager to hear from more of you about your perspectives on the unfolding events in Rojava and the connections between anarchist aspirations and the Kurdish struggle for freedom. We also received a correction in response to our discussion of the online crypto marketplace Silk Road in the Ross Ulbricht case. Here's what listener Napster had to say. It actually wasn't possible to buy anything on Silk Road. As part of the ideological project, one was, in theory, unable to purchase things that hurt other people. This included, but was not entirely limited to, people's identities slash credit card info slash social security numbers, etc., or assassinations and such. What's interesting is that the vacuum left by Silk Road has been filled by non-ideological markets like Evolution, on which one can purchase much closer to anything. The relationship between activist infrastructure being used by criminals and criminal infrastructure being used by activists is fascinating, and perhaps worth discussion at some point as well. I really like the eye on crypto-anarchy and the critiques of it. 
Although I would say that you took and often take an intellectual shortcut when you dislike a project and portray it in isolation to show its inadequacies. While I think you would put projects like the really, really free market, prison books, land projects, bookstores, even aggressive protest tactics in context alongside a larger constellation of projects. Also, a lot of crypto-anarchy projects are very practically minded and functionally non-ideological, or at least non-sectarian, as in not specifically anarcho-capitalist. Projects like cryptocurrency with anonymizing software may be worth learning about if you wanted to send money to the Rojava folks, since the U.S. government considers them to be related to the PKK, which it considers a terrorist organization. There have been many pro-Palestinian activists who have been convicted on serious charges for sending not particularly large sums of money to humanitarian and community organizations, which the U.S. decided were linked to terrorist organizations. Do anti-capitalists still need to move money around? I think similar cases can be made for the Pirate Bay and the Defense Distributed Liberator Project. Yours truly, Napster. Well, Napster, thanks for the corrections and for your thoughts. First, just to get the facts straight, we looked it up, and according to Wikipedia, you were right. On the Silk Road website, a number of items were prohibited from sale, including child pornography, stolen credit cards, assassinations, and weapons of any type. The substantial majority of the items listed for sale were substances that would be called drugs, along with fake IDs and various other illegal or semi-legal products. Incidentally, since the episode in which we discussed the case, Ross Ulbricht has been sentenced to life in prison. Here's a brief excerpt from an article on the blog of The Economist that touches on the implications for illegal online marketplaces. Ross Ulbricht, better known by his online pseudonym Dread Pirate Roberts, was sentenced to life in prison on May 29th for his part in running the Silk Road, a now-defunct website which was once the eBay of illegal drugs. When the FBI shut down the Silk Road in October 2013, it looked like a crushing blow to online drug dealing. The site had 13,000 drug listings, making up more than 70% of the online drug market. But the industry bounced back. Within months of the Silk Road's closure, a new website called Silk Road 2.0 popped up. It too was soon busted, at which point two smaller sites, Evolution and Agora, took up the slack. When in March this year, Evolution vanished, this time as the result of a scam by its operators rather than a police investigation, the gap was filled within a month by new pretenders. Mr. Ulbricht's harsh sentence is intended to serve as a warning to others. Don't expect it to have much effect. It's interesting to reflect on the role that ideology plays in this trend towards online regulation-free marketing. Ulbricht positioned himself as a crusader for freedom in a market libertarian sense. Is that why the Fed stuck it to him so harshly? Or was his ideological agenda irrelevant and the FBI strategy was simply to make an example of him to intimidate the copycats? It's hard to say. I read some of the comments made by the judge during sentencing, and she seemed mostly locked into the government's moralistic rhetoric about how harmful drugs are, more so than any political or economic rationale. She rejected the defense's arguments about purchasing drugs via Silk Road as a form of harm reduction and, <laughs> revealing herself to be a standard racist and heterosexist piece of shit, maintained that despite how he doesn't fit the profile of a quote-unquote typical criminal as an educated family man, he is in fact, quote, no better a person than any other drug dealer. Fuck that judge, seriously. 
But part of what I took from that is that the main ideological influence on at least the sentencing was the political framework of the drug war with all the dimensions of white supremacy and mass incarceration and family values that are tied into that. We can speculate then that the state saw Albrecht's lofty libertarian convictions as just a cover for the kind of antisocial profiteering that is only legitimate when it's conducted under the guise of law, like tobacco companies or fracking executives or private prisons and such. And if, as Napster says, the void is now being filled by less ideologically motivated venues where it's more possible to buy child porn or assassinations or whatever, then hammering Silk Road will have a parallel effect to mass incarceration of drug users or sex workers, driving activities further underground, making harm reduction efforts more difficult, and generally increasing misery under a self-righteous guise of punitive justice. So would it have been better if Silk Road had been allowed to continue? Well, of course, I don't think anyone should be in prison ever for any reason, nor do I think there should be an FBI or a United States government. So sure, free Ross Ulbricht along with everyone else forever. But as to the website itself, does the government really think that the million plus mostly drug transactions that happened on the website during the couple of years it was up are simply going to stop because the website went down? That addicts will see an error message on their web browser and suddenly lose their addictions? And that leads me to the point Napster raised about the mutually reinforcing nature of activist and criminal infrastructure. Whether or not we like to think about it this way, people tagged by the state as criminals, and those of us who think of ourselves as radicals, have a lot to learn from each other tactically. If drug dealers, graffiti writers, and other such folks paid more attention to activist practices around security culture, there would probably be a lot fewer of them in prison. And, as Napster notes, if more radicals and solidarity activists learned the techniques of online financial anonymity from Silk Roaders and Bitcoiners, we might be able to avoid a lot of trouble. Whether or not this suggests a broader political alliance is an open question. And briefly, as to the question of our intellectual shortcuts by portraying certain tactics or efforts out of context, well, okay, I hear you. But actually, I think a lot of these crypto-anarchy projects are far creepier in their overall context of anarcho-capitalism as the fullest or most extreme expression of neoliberalism. Bitcoin or Tor-protected anonymous movement of money could, as you pointed out, be valuable tools for radical movements. But when these are seen in their broader context of a concerted effort to reorganize society on the basis of market forces and contractual relations, they're part of the overall effort to undermine the social and economic basis of mutual aid or interdependence, which is already rapidly dying off as the welfare state and social democracy fall beneath the scythe of austerity. If there's going to be any use for these sorts of projects in building a world I'd want to live in, it'll be in wrenching them free of their context as tools towards transforming all human relations into market exchanges and appropriating them towards goals of solidarity and mutual aid. And finally, we also had a listener ask if we would consider doing some coverage or an episode on an anarchist response to the zeitgeist movement. Hmm, I don't probably think so. It may be the case that many people who are interested in critiques of capitalism get sucked into their strange thing, and if that's the case, it would be helpful to have a concise anarchist redirection formulated to offer would-be zeitgeisters. If any of y'all listeners out there have an anarchist critique of the zeitgeist movement, or advice on how to radicalize folks who've been inspired by it, drop us a line to podcast at crimethink.com. Oh, no.
día vino a mi pago, la sombra esa que no rige. Un día vino a mi pago, la sombra esa que no rige. Intentando de absorberme y así fue que yo le dije. Intentando de absorberme y así fue que yo le dije. An audio strike against a monotone Various listeners have written in asking if we'd consider doing coverage or episodes on anarchism in smaller towns. While many radicals tend to concentrate in urban metropolitan areas, there are lots and lots of us who aren't in Oakland or Montreal or Barcelona who still want to be active and create cultures of resistance in the less glamorous places where we live. So we've been keeping an eye out for opportunities to profile anarchist organizing in smaller places, a bit off the map of the most populous nexuses of anarchist activity. A few months ago, the ex-worker found ourselves in Lake Worth, Florida, a town of about 35,000 people on the east coast of southern Florida. It's a fascinating place. Despite the small size, it has a flourishing radical culture with a variety of different ongoing projects. It's about 60 or 70 miles north of Miami, so there is a nearby metropolitan area that shapes the culture and demographics. But it also has several features that'll be familiar to small-town anarchists. It's also a strikingly diverse place. There are several large immigrant communities in the area, including folks from Guatemala, Haiti, Cuba, Honduras, and Finland, plus older white retirees, a substantial black community, and various other kinds of folks. And for such a small town, the anarchists of Lake Worth have a very high profile. So high, in fact, they seem to get credit for quite a lot of things. After a recent local election, a defeated incumbent politician was quoted as saying, I still believe the city has the momentum that a small anarchist group will not succeed in taking over the city with their lies and tactics. Eh? Meanwhile, a popular local right-wing blogger obsessively rants about local anarchists, mentioning some by name over and over. While newspaper columnists claim that local earth firsters are attempting to destroy everything that decent people hold dear. Who are these Lake Worth anarchists, so reviled and anxiously discussed by local developers and right-wing politicos? What are they up to, and how have they managed to make such a name for themselves? One afternoon, at a warehouse called The Outspoken, which houses the Community Bicycle Project and the South Florida Prison Books Project, Alana sat down with a crew of Lake Worth anarchists to learn about the distinctive radical community there. We started off discussing the environmental resistance efforts of Everglades Earth First and the Earth First Journal, which relocated to Lake Worth several years ago. Folks contributed their experiences with the Books to Prisoners Project, a now-closed info shop, the local history of the global justice movement, immigrant solidarity organizing, and the publication Prison Legal News. And we even got to hear from an anarchist elected official who served two terms in public office. Even if you've never been down to South Florida, I think you'll find something fascinating in these discussions about the many different kinds of organizing against authority and domination that a lively crew of anarchists have experimented with in the specific context of one small town.
niña, quiero que me estreche. Pues ya nos hemos unido pasando por... So one of the active radical projects around here is Everglades Earth First. Can you talk a little bit about how that got started and what kinds of things y'all have worked on over the years? Yeah, my name is Panayoti, and um, I've been involved with the Everglades Earth First project since it started up uh, around 2006 and <clears throat> maybe 2005. And while it began specifically in response to the Scripps proposal uh, that came on the table 2004. It also, I think, got momentum built from the FTAA protests where a lot of people came from all over the country and that era of the anti-globalization summit hopping saw a lot of Earth First activists making you know, making the rounds and bringing the Earth First tools of the trade as far as blockades and affinity group style organizing uh, into that movement. And I think that we also use some of that momentum to get the Everglades Earth First group off the ground at that time. And the Scripps project seemed like it made sense to fight because it was, I think, one of the most explicit examples of you know venture capitalist development goals um, revolving around biotechnology and also the clearing of large amounts of local forests and wetlands. So we jumped in on that and tried to make those connections between the broader impact and the, the local threats. And so I think that's where Everglades Earth first got its start, and then soon after, when I started targeting Florida Power and Light, some of the biggest power companies in the country that's home based here. And what kinds of campaigns is Everglades Earth first working on these days? My name is uh, Onion. Right now, the main campaign is uh, there's a forest about 20 miles north of Lake Worth, which is one of the last unprotected forests in the area. And Scripps, along with um, the Coulter Group and a number of other places, are trying to clear-cut it and build a biotech facility where they're going to be testing on animals, along with a mini-mall, condos and houses. And so we're just trying to work both through the legal system and through protests, and there's been a couple of direct actions. There was a tree sit a few years ago, and then a blockade done about two or three months ago just trying to stop them from doing that, trying to get the community involved and figure out how to save the forest and the gopher tortoises and eastern indigo snakes and other animals that may be still living in that forest. I think that uh, maybe it's obvious, but that's an extension of the project that Everglades Earth First Group started with in 2004, 2005. Uh, the original proposal was sunk by a, a relationship of direct actions and uh, environmental lawsuits and it resurfaced in 2009 and so although it's largely a new group of people work on it working on it it's the same project what they're calling phase two of the uh, scripts biotech plan and so there's been some continuity there i think um 10 years of, of fighting and ba mostly and winning against scripts you know they actually laid concrete in their first proposal before the project got canceled and then uh, now they're Sadly, they're starting to bulldoze uh, to, for the roads in this phase two project, but like, we're remaining hopeful that we can stop it. We don't think it's a done deal until you know until it's over. So, is there anything that you think listeners outside of Florida should be paying attention to in terms of local ecological struggles or ways that folks can show solidarity with your efforts here? 
Scripps also has a campus in La Jolla, California, so pressure can be put on them there. It's a beautiful time to come to Florida. It's winter time everywhere else, but it's in the 70s and sunny every day here, so anybody who wants to come down here and give us a hand would be greatly appreciated. Can you talk a little bit about the history of the journal and the role that it's played in ecological struggles over the years and uh, how it ended up here in South Florida? Yeah, the journal's been publishing this year, it's the 35th year, and um, in, initially it started as a, a way to push the environmental movement further along strategically, and it was a time when corporate interests were uh, realizing that it was strategic to get their representation on the boards of nonprofits and basically start co-opting the environmental movement, which has, you know, I think been happening for the past 30-some years. And so Earth First history has kind of paralleled that. We still see that happening today, and I think in, especially with the climate movement and a lot of the efforts to co-opt uh, organizing around environmental issues. So I think Earth First has, you know, been a part of that. It came to Florida uh, in 2010 uh, as a result, I think, of sort of a lull in the Earth First movement in the mid-2000s, and it had been in Arizona for a while, and we were looking at trying to give some new energy to the journal and to the movement as a whole, bringing it to this place that we thought could bring new dynamics. The first time it had been on the East Coast, the first time it would be somewhere this far from the, well, far from the West Coast, this far from the culture that, that it was birthed out of, which was largely like the big wilderness kind of scene. So it was more of an urban reality in South Florida. While we do still have the Everglades, which is a you know, pretty massive wild area, we also have the dynamics of you know, being a, like a, in the middle of an international community of, of people who spend a lot of time throughout the hemisphere in the Caribbean and Central and South America, so immigrant communities and solidarity organizing that happens. So we were hoping to build off some of that, which was started in Arizona, being so close to the border. Can you talk a little bit about the role that the journal plays now in ecological struggles, including both specifically anarchist direct action approaches, but also the broader environmental movement? For me, in the direct action community, it's a way of telling stories. It's not covered a lot in mainstream media, and when it is, it's just very brief, and it's from the, uh, the mainstream point of view. And just reading the journal myself before I got here showed me that there are people fighting all the time. There's constantly actions going on. People are constantly putting their bodies on the line because they care about the environment and they care about the animals. And it's even a way of people who are more involved in the, the legal battles or signing petitions or something like that to see that there is another way, that they've signed petitions for years and nothing's ever really gotten done and they wish there was something else they could do. And they pick up an Earth First journal and they see that there is something else they can do. And maybe they get involved through doing that. I know that in the era of the internet, it's difficult to keep a print publication going. I know that the Earth First Journal Newswire is one of the major sources that we use here on the podcast for news about ecological resistance. Can you talk a little bit about the Newswire and the website and how you see those as relating to the print publication? Um, I think the Newswire is a it's a lot easier than printing a journal, than raising money and getting articles submitted and editing and figuring out how to print it and distribute it. We go online and we write something or we find something somewhere else and repost it. You can access it from your phone or from a computer anywhere. You know, something happens right now and 30 minutes later it could be on the internet for the world to see. 
but I think the the journal still has a a place too because there's, to me there's something romantic about seeing words on a piece of paper and being able to carry it around and there are people who don't have access to the internet because either they don't they can't afford it or they're traveling or they're in prison I think a lot of what we do is for prisoners because they can't access the internet and I don't know, there's something really cool about seeing a glossy picture of somebody with a slingshot in their back pocket overlooking a a slash pile that really gets me going more than turning on a computer. Lloro, yo y también tú lo haces. Más de rabia en nuestro llanto y lo arregle el amoníaco. Pues lloramos por los gases y lo arregle el amoníaco. Pues lloramos por los gases. So one project from Lake Worth's recent radical history was the Night Heron Info Shop. Uh, can someone tell me a little bit about that project, sort of what it was there to do and what kinds of projects it got involved in? I can talk a little bit about that. My name is Serafima. I live in Lake Worth. The Night Heron Grassroots Activist Center started around the time that the Earth First Journal moved from Tucson to Lake Worth. I think they needed an office space and... There was this, like, spot on G Street that was just available, and it had, like, a space for an office in the back and a space for more stuff in the front. It was a place where there could be meetings, could be events, and there was also a library. We had, like, a ton of books. Um, people from all over the community donated so that there was this real community resource where people could come check out books. We had, like, a whole system for that. There was also like this big zine library that was around for a while. All of these things still exist. They're just in, in one of the land trust houses right now. It was a place for all sorts of things to happen. I know with the Prison Book Project, we had a whole bunch of our fundraisers over there. There were Earth First Journal meetings all the time, also Everglades Earth First meetings. There was like the local socialist party met there. Like, I remember I did a consensus workshop there once. There were, like, children's events. There was something about Palestine. There was this great event about Palestine and water rights. It was just a place where all types of things were happening. All sorts of different kinds of people were coming to meet. And there was a lot of stuff getting done. People were in there painting banners for protests. Protests were being planned. Uh, all sorts of stuff. It was around for a while, and it was really good for a while. I think it's really hard to keep up steam for something like that for a really prolonged amount of time just because it takes so much resources. It takes a lot of money to pay the rent. It takes money to like keep up all the computers and everything like that and just to keep people interested. I don't think that the activist scene died out at all when the Night Heron stopped, but it was kind of a thing where people found different ways to make things happen in different places to go. Also about the Night Heron, it was it was really a community center, which was not just like the 20 to 30 year old radical activists getting together and doing their thing. Like there were, you know, kids from the neighborhood coming in using the computers and older people, people who would not identify as anarchists, things like that, coming and using the space. It was something really special. Mm. Based on y'all's experience with the Night Heron, would you have any advice for people who 
wanted to start either an info shop or a radical community space in their town, particularly a smaller town that may not have the access to resources that larger cities do? I would just say be really intentional about it. One of the first things that we did when the Night Heron opened up was we had like a statement of our ideals and our intentions and we had it, we painted it and put it on the wall. We, we made the space nice. I think that's really important to have a place where it feels comfortable to go to and a comfortable place to learn and be together and organize in. You know, it takes a dedicated group of people and it takes like considerable commitment. Also, it would be really great to think about where all of your funding is gonna come from right at the beginning to make sure that that stays consistent. But it's definitely a doable thing. You need a space, you need committed people, you need to believe in something, maybe you need to believe in a couple of things, and um, you need to keep working on it. But it can happen, um, definitely, and it can stay for a while, as long as you keep putting yourself into it. You mentioned that it was a space that managed to transcend a lot of the subcultural limitations in terms of age or in terms of specific political demographics that sometimes limit radical spaces what was the explicit basis for coming together in terms of either your mission statement or your political vision like how did you frame what it was that the night heron was for or who it was for basically we were dedicated to fighting oppression um to fighting for what we believed in and for doing it in ways which were accessible to everybody so we tried to not just have events which were put on maybe by the people that were putting in the most work. And it was also not the people that were putting in the most work wasn't always like the 20 to 30-year-old anarchists. It was also not those people who were necessarily putting in the most money. I think having a library really helped because lots of people read, lots of people use books, especially a lot of people use the computer. That's how we got a lot of people in. It was also a very cultural space. Like where people like we would get together and had like like music and artists from the community got to share and like we would hear poetry and play instruments so that also added a very very mystical very nice value to the space because we, we had a this space that we could just gather and and support each other can you tell us a bit about what the South Florida Prison Books Project does and how it was founded? Yes, absolutely. So the South Florida Prison Book Project sends free books to prisoners in the state of Florida upon request. So basically what that means is we get letters from prisoners all the time. I'd say we get about uh, maybe 15 a week um, requesting either certain books or certain genres of books. And we have like a library here. We're in this little warehouse called Outspoken. We share this space with... Um, a bike collective and there's just all sorts of stuff cramming up this warehouse but it's it's great um this is actually where we're recording the interview now um uh, so what we do is we go through our big collection of books um, which come from donations i think we started out like this big pallet of books from somebody who was going to start a bookstore but didn't um and we pick and choose usually we send one to four books depending um 
And yeah, we fill out orders and get things to the people who need them. We were kind of formed out of having this palette of books and kind of wondering what to do with it and also this deep belief that prisoners are human beings who deserve the right to fill their time with things which will enrich and empower them. So we try to um, provide them with the tools to do that, whether it be through books, through zines, through um, issues of the present legal news, issues of Earth First Journal, really anything that somebody would ask for or want, we try to provide it for them. It started up here in 2011. Um, I think maybe 2009 or 2010, the the Prison Book Project first started in Miami. I think it was called the Miami Prison Book Project. Um, it, there was this bicycle space. I remember the first meeting that I went to, there was... Um, a bunch of people building bicycles to send out to Haiti. It was right after the earthquake, so I guess it was 2010. Um, and I remember like going to help with the bicycles, not really being that that savvy with fixing bikes. I went upstairs, and there were all these people trying to sort books um, so that they could be sent out to prisoners. What happened was eventually that space shut down, and there was no place to really hold the books anymore, so they came up to Lake Worth, which is about an hour and a half drive north, maybe an hour drive north, and there were just these books in boxes sitting up um, on a wall in a warehouse. So me and a couple of other people were like, well, we should do something, and we just started back up the book, um, the book project um, and got it going. That was 2011. It's 2014 now, and we've sent thousands and thousands i'd say at least over three thousand books to a bunch of different prisoners a lot of people will write back consistently um we have people who we've formed real connections with that's kind of the work that we do getting tools of empowerment into the hands of people who are the least empowered in this country i know that there are also books to prisoners projects in uh Pensacola out of open books and also in Gainesville, which focuses on women's prisons. Can you talk about what kind of relationship you have to those groups or how they figure into the landscape of Florida prisoner support? Absolutely. Um, We're really connected. I think that's one of the benefits of being an activist in Lake Worth and being an activist in Florida. Um, You know people around the state of Florida. There's things happening really every city in Florida. I could name a few people who are doing some really solid work to... um, make some pretty radical changes uh, in the way the world works. In uh, Pensacola, they had the Open Books Prison Book Project, which I believe only uh, also deals with prisoners in the state of Florida. There's a lot of prisons in the state of Florida and a lot of people asking for books. The way that we started actually was the open book sent us 100 letters i kind of called up and asked them like hey how do you start a prison book project what can you do and they were like oh hey it's pretty simple what you do is you get a bookstore or a publisher so that you can put their name in your return address so what we send everything as is south florida prison book project care of daily planet publishing p.o box 1021 lake worth florida 33460 and you figure out what are the laws in the state. In Florida, usually you can send um, up to four books. Most usually it's only paperbacks, um, but every once in a while there are prisons that will let in hardcovers. So we kind of have to talk to each individual prisoner, see what they can get. You make an invoice so you can put, okay, we're sending this book, this book, this book, and they're all free. In uh, South Florida also, I think, Having the Prison Book Project down here was instrumental in forming the Prison Book Project in Gainesville. One of the people who was really instrumental in forming the Prison Book Project in Gainesville was one of the people who helped start the Prison Book Project 
in Miami. So there's really this interconnectedness, a, scare, a sharing of skills, um, a sharing of letters so that um, we can get the word out there to different prisoners um, about our different services. But yeah, I think without that interconnectedness, it would be really hard to have any of these projects work. If you want to contact um, or find out more about the South Florida Prison Book Project, you can visit sflprisonbookproject.org. We're there, and uh, there's a contact email there. You can get in touch with me. And if anybody would like to start a prison book project where they are, I would say find out the laws in your prisons, maybe talk to some people in prison, um, some people who know people in prison. Chances are there is an inn and people looking for books. There's always a need, and it's not too difficult to fill it. Flavia, can you tell us a little bit more about the context of immigration here in Lake Worth and some of the struggles that you've been a part of in terms of immigrant rights and immigrant solidarity? Well, um, uh, my name is Flavia. I was uh, born in Argentina. I live now in Lake Worth. I've been here for the last five years. And pretty much the context that uh, Lake Worth is in, it's... It's a, it's a melting pot, just like all of Florida. Specifically, Lake Worth, there's a mix of uh, of different cultures. All We all live here. And uh, so you will find, walking down the street, you will find lots of uh, people born and raised in Guatemala, lots of Central American countries. Um, mainly, it's uh, there's a huge Guatemalan and Mexican population. There are also, uh, like me, many South Americans, and and we're all mixed here with with white people. You know, and there's a lot of old white people. So it's it's a really interesting mix. There is a really interesting mix between the people who migrated in like the last twenty, thirty years, and like the recent immigrants, like myself. I I've been here for in Florida for about ten years, and. Um, just, it's really interesting to watch how people integrate and assimilate to the culture, right? Uh, whether it's language or, or like in the school system. But um, one thing that is really striking about Lake Worth is um, how people are are very proud. I want to say of their cultures, specifically the the Haitian and the the Guatemalan culture. That you get to experience all these things and learn from them. Uh, a lot of people speaking their own languages. Like I'll be walking down and there's these these folks speaking Creole and I have no idea what they're saying. But like you know, like they don't lose their language and that's such an important thing for me as like um, a person who whose first language is not English and uh, I probably will never master it. Who knows? But. Uh, like the language component, whether people are speaking Spanish or, or also people from Central America speak different dialects here, that they don't lose that, not for them and also for their children. And same thing with Creole. It's it's such an amazing uh, 
thing that people are proud of and that I've noticed in traveling to other places of the states that is not the same like the the language thing at least how um how people are maybe they don't they don't feel as comfortable speaking what their their languages and uh and it speaks about the the resistance right the resistance that this uh these different oppressed communities are are sustaining in Lake Worth yeah it's a really wild mix and uh we are all here in Lake Worth it's a really small town it's it's a culture clash and it's also a melting pot and um it's part of the reason why I live here I moved I decided to move to Lake Worth because of the anarchist community back in uh, 2010 when I was getting radicalized doing immigrant work I found out like all of the radical community and uh, I realized then in this space in like the anarchist community there is so much acceptance you know and especially like coming out as a queer person like um There's a lot of uh, spaces of like Latino spaces that I would frequent that they were very homophobic and uh transphobic but uh being here in like the in Lake Worth in this radical community like it was so opening to to people of, of all different uh, sexualities and and genders that um that's part of the reason why I'm here. Yeah. Awesome. I have noticed that Lake Worth's radical scene seems pretty queer <laughs> I, I don't know if there's any context or history to that but um, can you talk a little bit about some of the you know performances and the cultural stuff that is really distinctive about Lake Worth's radical and queer scenes yeah um, well it's it's always an evolution but um, like we were talking about the night here and earlier yeah uh, going into the night here and, and going to like one of one of the shows that we used to have there were so many uh transgender folks and and so many queer women there are so many queer women in in the anarchist scene of Lake Worth and it's it's very refreshing because it it fights the heteropatriarchy you know and um It's just, for me, it's very welcoming and it's very liberating. The anarchist scene in Lake Worth, I, I would say it's very centered around uh, women. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In terms of some of the immigrant organizing you've been involved in, what are some of the struggles that immigrants in this region are facing and how are anarchists participating in solidarity with that? Okay. Well, um, some of the struggles are very different depending on on, on socioeconomic status, right? Um, there, we live with many farm workers, and their struggles are very different from like a person like me, like working class, middle class. But um, some of the struggles that we focus on mainly in the last couple of years have been like documentation and pretty much the fact that many of us. Uh, don't have papers, don't have legal status. And that means, like, realistically, that means not having a driver's license, not being able to drive, um, not being able to to feel safe and being prosecuted, you know. Um, also, the access to education, for those of us who can access it, just not being able to go through the college system because of not having proper documentation. Then some other issues would be housing 
here in Lake Worth. Um, in the last couple of years, it's been getting harder and harder to to access housing because they ask for more and more paperwork. Yeah, and uh, it's it's a highly rented community. There's many people who own homes in Lake Worth, but also a lot of us rent. Many of us rent, and the. The people who own the homes are becoming like all these big companies that own like lots of houses and they they're becoming very specific about who wants to live and like, you know, gentrification. So it's becoming harder and harder to get homes. Uh, I would say that, but mainly it would be documentation. It's just like the fear of, of being depart- deported if you don't have papers. That's one of the main issues that uh, that I've been working on these last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there any anarchist projects or actions from recent years that you found particularly inspiring or that you're especially proud of? Um, what I've really loved about the the Lake Worth anarchist community is specifically dealing with immigrant rights. It has just been like the the willingness to work with with people from the community who are totally different from us, you know, like who come from totally different life paths and um, who who we, we don't just really know each other, but we're our neighbors. So, so we stand in solidarity. So specifically, uh, one of the last things we worked together on was in in 2010, we did um, we did a march, a walk from Miami to Washington, D.C. It was a three-month walk. It started in January, ended May 1st in Washington, D.C., and it was to call attention to the deportations that were going on. So so throughout the walk, we would go from city to city in Florida and also in, in North Carolina and in the other states calling attention to deportations. And so they passed by Lake Worth. We passed by Lake Worth. And in Lake Worth, pretty much all of the the anarchist community helped in preparing for uh, the walkers to stop by, and we held a lunch on one of the the city city buildings. What's now the the um, the art gallery, the Armor Armory Center. So it's just the the willingness and openness to to face this issue that 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 I mean the majority of the white anarchist folks that are here in Lake Worth, we don't have deportation issues, you know? So it's just the openness to to stand in solidarity, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I remember that the first time that I was in South Florida was in 2003 for the FTAA protests in Miami, which are now sort of notorious as one of the most intense moments of the anti-globalization era in terms of police violence and massive resistance and massive repression. Um, I know that a lot of Lake Worth folks were really involved in organizing for that. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that history and about the connections between Lake Worth and Miami, which is, you know, just 70 or 80 miles south of here and has a lot of other radical projects that are related to but separate from the community here. Okay, well, I grew up in Miami. I lived in Miami from when I was born till when I was about 20. And then I moved back to Miami, and I lived there from when I was 21 to 23. 
um, all before I moved to Lake Worth. The first time I heard about Lake Worth, which is, it is a small town, it's not huge, um, and I had no idea until the FTAA protests in 2003. when I was 16 and in high school and really just getting into radical politics and activism and things like that and going to all these meetings and they kept talking about the Lake Worth Global Justice Group, which I guess was a bunch of people who are now close friends of mine and some other people making these huge, awesome puppets and planning to raise a um, really strategic and powerful ruckus down in Miami with beautiful art and a beautiful message and uh, arm-in-arm struggle or something like that. And um, I think that that type of work was really something which, at least for me, and I think in a, in a bigger way too, kind of uh, linked Miami and Lake Worth. I think that was a huge thing. There was a big march from Lake Worth to Miami called the Root Cause March, which brought a lot of different people together. One thing that was great about the FTAA protests and the FTAA organizing was that um, it wasn't limited to this insular group of white um, white anarchists. There were a lot of people who were very affected by the free trade agreement, um, who had family in countries which were maybe even more affected by the United States. Um, not that the people in the United States were not seriously affected by free trade and don't continue to be. Um, But there's just a really diverse group of people marching down from Lake Worth to Miami was a really powerful show of solidarity that, you know, South Florida really, really cares about what's going on in the globe and really cares about stopping some really evil corporate shit that's coming to take over the planet starting in Miami, the capital of Latin America or whatever. Well, there was a big dance party feud in uh, 2006 or 2007 um, on New Year's. There was like this big dance off between Miami and Lake Worth. I think Miami won. Um, I think there's a consensus that Miami won that. But other people might say differently. <laughs> but there's always, like, you know, since since the FTA and stuff like that, there's been a close connection between Miami and Lake Worth. There are a ton of things happening in Miami, and there are a ton of issues which are really important in Miami that I think people in Lake Worth could really benefit from being a part of, um, movements that are really badass and run by, you know, poor people, people of color, um, who people in Lake Worth organizing could probably learn a lot from. Um, but there is that connection, you know, I, there's radical houses and punk houses in Miami, which know the people in the radical and punk houses in Lake Worth and the, you know, people travel for shows and stuff like that. I think I would like to see more of a closer connection between real activist politics getting shit done um, in Miami and Lake Worth. Hace días, hace días no te veo por los lugares de siempre y no puedo preguntar preguntar nada a la gente
So one thing that is very distinctive about Lake Worth's radical community is having had at one point an anarchist elected official, <laughs> which is not something that many places can say. <laughs> so uh, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how that happened, what the what the logic was, what the strategy was, and what your experience was like. Hi, my name is Kara, and I served uh, two terms as a city commissioner here in Lake Worth, and a commissioner is, uh, in other places, it's called different things, maybe a council member, an alderman, it's it's pretty much the same thing. And uh, it's, you know, a bit of an oxymoron to be an anarchist elected official, and there's a lot of contradictions to it. But there was also a lot of practical value to holding a, a public office. But essentially, I, I started getting involved in issues in Lake Worth in part because I was part of a collective house called the Villa de Volva that we started in 1999. And we had a radical library, and we would do anarchist events out of the house. And then our landlord started getting heat from the Code Enforcement Department. And they started um, putting pressure on him to evict us. So I got curious about this place called City Hall that I'd never been to. And I just, like, happened to go to a meeting there. And I remember being in that meeting and thinking, wow, these people are assholes. I can't believe they are running the show here for all of Lake Worth. And really, beyond not agreeing with them politically, they were really, there was just a level of dismissiveness around important issues. So, yeah, I I started getting really involved in city issues and meeting folks who were part of the part of city hall and getting into arguments with the mayor at the time who did come to one of our anarchist events. We'd, we'd had a panel right after Jeffrey Lurz when he was going to trial. We had a community event to talk about it, and he did come to that event because he was really curious about who are these people in town kind of starting to stir the pot. So, yeah, eventually, ultimately, um, a few years later, Panayoti ran for mayor on a platform called More Chickens, Less Pigs. And... He did not win, but he got um, enough of a percentage. I think he got like 3%. So maybe he got like 58 votes or something to um, create a runoff between the current mayor who had been a mayor for a long time and who we were trying to get out of power and the progressive um, person, Mark, who was also running. So it was helpful in that way. And then once it came to the runoff, the progressive candidate, we were able to get him into office and it really significantly shifted the course of development that was happening up until that point. Basically Lake Worth is a, a pretty working class town, very close to the ocean. Um, and it's considered way too good of a location to have poor people living. And that was the sentiment they were really trying to push through a lot of new development projects and to gentrify the city. So we were helpful in in shaking that up a bit. And then the next year I decided that I would run, but more seriously, you know, like with mailers and campaign signs. And they didn't say, my literature didn't say vote for me, I'm an anarchist. But it did talk about issues that were important around gentrification and affordable housing and immigration and um, the police budget. 
And so um, did a lot of grassroots support. I won. And I remember the night I won, I like sat on the floor and started crying. And I wasn't because I was happy. It was because I was like, what the hell did I just do? Uh, I just kind of wanted to like prove to these jerks that they're not untouchable. And, And then I ended up, I had to actually serve a role as city commissioner. So, yeah, it was very interesting. I did get some heat nationally from some anarchists. And, um, you know, people do would challenge me that I wasn't really an anarchist because now I, I would have power over people. And I think those are legitimate um, critiques. And it was really challenging because I did hold a lot of power. Um, and it is... Um, you know, something you really have to stay in check with in any role in your life where you have power that you're not, um, you know, abusing it. And so my first term, I was very outvoted, but then for my second term, we won a progressive majority. And then I got, it was really fun. I, we like passed a lot of interesting ordinances and, um, changed some pretty significant laws of specifically around code enforcement. The city had these, um, very anti poor people policies of, um, the way they would evict people through code enforcement. And so I was able to, um, you know, not just like stop it on a temporary way, but, you know, actually change the law and make everyone get retrained. Um, and I, I believe that is not happening anymore. Their um, former policies. And then in regards to development, I mean, people, business owners used to come and complain to me and. And realtors would come to the meetings and make public comments. Like when the market crashed, they actually blamed the anarchists in town that we had crashed the entire housing market of the city, which I took as a huge compliment. I think it was a little above our heads. I think it was Wall Street, but you know, we would, we were really proud that they thought it was all us. So yeah, I think like it's, you know, all about the place you're in and in other cities, maybe it wouldn't make sense. But in here, it was useful, and there's a big budget. Most cities have some kind of budget, and to have some um, say in how the city's budget is spent was pretty important. The thing about getting back to the more chickens, less pigs, both of those things have yet to be successful. We still, although I tried, we don't have a, you're not allowed to have chickens in the city. And... Sadly, the police budget has increased. Uh, right now, the police budget in the city of Lake Worth occupies about 55% of the city's budget. And so it, it really is a critical issue here and in most places that uh, the police are just hogging all the money for their evil, their evil ways, I guess. Yeah. That is a totally fascinating story. And one that's super challenging for me to hear as an anarchist opposed to representative democracy. But I guess it it sounds like your approach was any tool in the toolbox. Here are the issues that we want to fight and let's experiment and be playful and see what happens. Do you have any, I don't know, have you, do you have any lessons you've drawn from that experience or any advice you would give to folks in smaller towns about how to combine how to think about using unconventional strategies for anarchists to intervene against the power structures where you live? Well, I guess a lesson learned is, or just an inherent challenge 
to trying to uh you know break down the system from the inside i suppose or to change make change that way is that the more faith put i felt like the more faith people put in me and the other progressive commissioners to change things it's almost like you're reinforcing their faith faith in the system and that was something that i never wanted to do because people are so indoctrinated that this is the way we are and we we vote and we have a system and we can change it trying to to shake that up i i found really challenging so if if for example somebody's uh, somebody's upset because the they don't have a playground in their neighborhood and then they look to you as like the person who's trying to make the city more sustainable to help them get a playground and you succeed at it. Then, you know, an idea of like, hey, I could just create my own playground or have a gorilla playground. You know, like you re- haven't reinforced that idea. What you've reinforced is like, oh, if you come to the city and if you help people win, get elected who are progressive, then you'll get what you want. So, I mean, it's a tough call because this is the system we live in. And until we like sh- take the whole thing down maybe we should have more control or you know that money should go to positive community resources versus like going to handouts to developers i don't know it's i feel even complicated just thinking about it or trying to articulate it and then for other people i would say um if folks are gonna um go down that road of trying to uh run for office my best advice is to use the entire process as a way to push the conversation in the direction you want to go. So don't run as like some like kind of mainstream person who's just like agrees with whatever bullshit majority opinion there is in your town. Because, I mean, if you win, then you're like, you know, people are going to be confused when you actually start saying something else. But more importantly, if you lose on that whole time when you could have been going door to door and pushing, you know, views that you think would push things to the left you've missed that opportunity and so that was something that was important to me when I ran I was like well when I go to door to door I'm not going to act like uh, I don't have any opinions on things I'm going to share my opinions and in that way it was like this incredible like citywide effort to like kind of spread these other opinions which I know a lot of us when we're working on projects we ne- we never go door to door and talk to people and see what their point of view is and so that was a really empowering thing to do it's a shame people mostly only do it when they're running for office but it's pretty incredible oh and I, I had just some awesome stories they, like my opponent did all these mailers against me calling me an anarchist saying I was anti-police saying people found out about my radical cheerleading pass and they would come to the meetings and recite the like PIGS pigs cheer into the microphone and get it on public record and be like Commissioner Jennings is it true you called the police the pigs and all this stuff and I'd be like oh my god what am I going to do and then I'd go door to door and like this one one time this woman answers her door and she's I was like hi I'm and she's like I know who you are you're that politician who doesn't like the police and I was like oh shit I was like well and she's like I don't like the police either (laughs) so I actually got quite a bit of that so so back to tips I mean I think it is an interesting way to relate to other people and it gives you a really good excuse to go out door to door and really talk to your neighbors and find people who are in solidarity with your perspective
Hi, my name is Paul Wright. I'm the editor and founder of Prison Legal News, and I started Prison Legal News in 1990 when I was in prison in Washington State, and we originally started out as a 10-page hand-typed newsletter. We've since expanded. We, at the time in 1990, we had uh, 75 prospective subscribers that we mailed the magazine to, and we're hoping it would grow from there, and it has. Um, Today, we have uh, between 7,000 and 9,000 subscribers around the country. We're a 64-page offset printed magazine, and we do in-depth investigative journalism. We do reporting on uh, legal and news developments involving the entire criminal justice system, but our core reporting is around... um, is basically around detention facility news, and that's which is prisons and jails and what's happening in them and the rights of prisoners and what's happening behind bars. And as far as the behind bars, we take a pretty expansive view on that. We're interested in reporting on pretty much anywhere people are being detained against their will by the U.S. government or its agencies. So that includes um, local jails, prisons, the federal prison system, civil commitment centers for sex offenders, uh, military prisons, Indian jails, juvenile prisons, and everything else I might have missed there. But the only thing we don't really cover a lot of in, in that realm is secured psychiatric facilities. So that's about the only thing um, that we're not covering. And we have subscribers and readers in all of those facilities. Uh, these days, around 70 to 80% of our uh, print subscribers are prisoners, and our website, prisonlegalnews.org, receives around 100 to 120,000 visitors a month from people all over the world, and we have the biggest online presence as far as quality news articles dealing with um, the criminal justice system in this country and the human rights of prisoners. Can you talk a little bit about how PLN relates to other radical projects and radical communities here in Lake Worth or South Florida? We've also worked in coalition with a lot of other organizations and groups uh, kind of across the political spectrum. We also take a pretty expansive view of the issue of prisoner rights and where human rights and prisoners' rights fall in, in political struggle. We certainly don't view them as being in isolation. We think that there's definitely a connection between issues of homelessness, concentrations of wealth, um, workers' rights, and pretty much most of the things that afflict poor people, we think that uh, the prison system and the criminal justice system is just one manifestation of basically the overall crackdown of the American police state, squeezing Americans across the board, crushing dissent, and eliminating political space. And so over the years, we've done a lot of work with uh, organizations ranging on everything from uh, GLBT rights to environmental issues, women's rights. Um, pretty much everything has some type of criminal justice nexus, and, and we've never we've never been of the mindset that prisoner rights are somehow isolated or not connected to these other struggles. And in fact, I think it's one of those things that historically the movement for prisoners' rights in this country has tailed or trailed along with other movements. In the 60s and 70s, we had a massive prisoner rights movement in this country, and it was very much connected to both the anti-war movements of the day and the civil rights movement. And the prisoner movement has also been kind of a microcosm of uh, larger American society where as the activism and political ambitions uh, of people outside of prisons have waxed and waned, so too of those of the prisoner rights movement. And we've also been pretty cognizant of that.
in the last couple of years, there's been, it seems to me, a renewed focus on criticisms of the criminal justice system and policing through things like the publication of the new Jim Crow and the focus on that, the uprisings coming out of Ferguson and the massive anti-police protests of recent months. Can you talk a little bit from your perspective working with folks inside what if those broader social conversations and and resistance have uh, impacted folks who are incarcerated now or what sort of changes you see on the horizon? Well, so far, I don't think any of these developments have really led to any significant change uh, on the outside either, much less on the inside. Um, you know, you talk about the publication of the book, The New Jim Crow. That book has a lot of, in my opinion, significant limitations, um, you know, um, for example, you know, no one's claiming that wealthy black people are being herded into prisons in significant numbers because they aren't. But, you know, I think as, as far as just the overall trundling along or building up of the American police state, it so pretty much continues unabated is, you know, yes, we've seen some protests around Ferguson. But, you know, the last really mass um, urban protest that we've seen in this country uh, go back to 1992 and the Rodney King uprisings. And the Ferguson stuff doesn't even really play with that. And I think when you start looking at an international level, if you look at, for example, countries like Greece and Italy, where uh, worker austerity and, and uh, budget crisis there are hitting the peoples and the working classes of those countries, and you look at the reality is that the political leaders of those countries feel they can only squeeze their working class so much before their cities erupt in riots and their, and their capital cities are burning. And you see no such concerns on the part of the American ruling class in this country. And I think that that's one of the things is where we have to look at the issue of mass incarceration as a very successful counterinsurgency strategy that the U.S. has developed over the last 30 or 40 years. And I think when you look at like the late 1960s, for example, when you know, 300 American cities burned in response to the war in Vietnam, police abuse and misconduct in uh, poor communities, working class people being largely crushed by what was at the time kind of the nascent move to outsource labor and, and industrialism to third world countries. And you kind of look at that response and you look at what's happened now. I think the differences are pretty huge. For one thing, the police state has grown immensely. I think at any given time, uh, the United States has over 16,000 police agencies where um, with several million police officers that are armed and able and willing to kill people at the government's orders and that of their corporate masters. The prison system, if you look at it, in 1990, when Prison Legal News started 25 years ago, there was a million people in prison. If you look at the prison system 10 years before that, in 1980, uh, there's around 500,000 people in prison. So you've seen the prison system uh, go from uh, roughly five or 600,000 people in 1980, and here we are 35 years later in 2015, and there's 2.5 million people in prison, which is pretty massive. And, and you think about it, this is the uh, one criminologist says that mass incarceration is the most thoroughly implemented social experiment in, in American history. And it's actually, in some respects, it is the most massive experiment in mass incarceration in world history. Um, <laughs> when you hear about regimes, uh, some people criticize uh, Stalin's Russia or Nazi Germany, but in terms of percentages of the population, Ron numbers. Um, neither one of those regimes incarcerated the 
number of people the United States incarcerates. And I think that's a pretty impressive achievement. And one of the things that mass incarceration has brought the ruling class of this country has brought them a lot of social peace. They literally are able to do a lot of stuff that their colleagues in that their ruling classes in Western Europe aren't able to do. Um, and, you know, and, that, and I think one of the things that's important to note is there's a difference between resistance and protest. And in the U.S., we have a little bit of protest and not much. But even with that little bit of protest and an almost total absence of resistance, the United States police forces and its military are geared up for total counterinsurgency and are ready and able to wage a pretty ruthless uh, campaign to destroy any type of dissent in the United States. I think we see this in um, just the crushing of any type of political space where um, I would say 30 years ago the notion that there was a free speech zone um, where, okay, you can get herded into the little cage and uh, express your views critical of the government. Um, 30 years ago, I think most people would have thought the whole country was a free speech zone and that people could voice their political opinions um, anywhere in the country. And we've seen that just isn't so. And we've seen how these notions of constricting speech, um, constricting dissent, have gained widespread acceptance, and it's getting to the point where a lot of people don't even question it. So, and again, this is, I think, coupled with the whole notion that we got two and a half million people in prison, and it's had huge destabilizing effects on entire communities, especially uh, poor communities in general and poor communities of color in particular. I mean, one of the things is you can go to a lot of uh, poor black communities and, like, where are the men? Well, they're all locked up. And, and this had some pretty serious destabilizing effects that pretty much aren't even really discussed, and there's not, they're not really even on anyone's agenda. So overall, I think that, you know, those are some of the changes we've seen. And I think from a ruling class perspective, I think mass incarceration can be deemed a huge success. Can you talk a little bit about what some of the major issues or struggles are today facing incarcerated folks, either here in Florida or generally across the U.S.? Sure. I'd say that probably the number one issue that faces uh, people in prison, not just in Florida, but nationally, is the lack of adequate medical care. Um, on average, uh, each year we've got around 5,000 people a year are dying behind bars that we know of. And, you know, to put that into perspective, I think when people talk about the uh, September 11th uh, guerrilla attacks on the World Trade Center and the 3,000 bond traders who died in those attacks, I think that's certainly a tragedy. But that tragedy unfolds itself uh, every eight or nine months every year since then in American prisons and jails. And no one, except for Prison Legal News and, uh, and a few other activists and prison rights organizations, are even talking about that unfolding uh, slow-motion massacre. Uh, the Palm Beach Post recently did a really good series on uh, the fact that death rates in the Florida DOC have gone from 35 a year to over 400 a year since the Florida DOC privatized its health services to Corizon, which is a for-profit company, that basically the less health care they deliver, the more money they make. And so it's not surprising that the death rate has gone up uh, like a thousand percent. So I would say based on the correspondence that Prison Legal News gets um, and just as far as the news coverage, the litigation that's going on, the lack of adequate medical care is probably the number one concern and issue facing all prisoners in the United States. Put another way, I can't think of a single prison system that I would say, if I were sick, this is the place I would like to be. Um, they're all pretty bad. They just range from 
kind of outright genocidal to a little a little more discreet about it. Then we've got uh, the lack of adequate mental health care. Uh, statistically, depending on the state, 40 to 60 percent of the prisoners are deemed to be seriously mentally ill. And by seriously mentally ill, you know, we're not talking that, hey, they've got some issues with authority or they drink a little or they like to smoke a little pot every now and then. We're talking about serious um, life-affecting mental illness and mental disorders. And there's pretty much a non-existent policy or practice of treatment for people that are mentally ill in this country's prisons. And we've seen, and it's, it's interesting, too, because we've seen one of the things we saw in this country was the deinstitutionalization of much of this country's psychiatric population in the 60s and the 70s. But then basically they've just been herded from one secure confinement facility, which operated under the guise of psychiatric care, into another, which is the criminalization of mental illness. So now these same people are in prisons and jails, um, ostensibly being punished so rather than treated. So I think those are probably the the number one and number two issues. Um, I think we've also got the issues of, you know, the profiteering and the price gouging of prisoners and their families, where um, basically prisoners in general and any type of contact they want to have with their families and loved ones are monetized. Everything from uh, trying to maintain contact with their families through telephones, through food packages, to receiving money from uh, from their families, to the fact that, you know, so many basic things have to be bought and paid for. If you're in prison and you just want soap to bathe with or toothpaste to brush your teeth with, you have to buy this. And in a lot of states, especially in the old slave states of the former Confederate which I don't think it's any accident that there's this uh, pretty concrete connection. But like in Florida, Texas, Arkansas, for example, prisoners have no legal way to earn money within those prison systems. It's not like you can say, well, if Johnny the prisoner gets a job in the prison system, he can earn money to um, buy soap or buy toothpaste. They don't even have those options. So I think that those are... Those are some of the bigger issues. Uh, but, you know, if you want to look at kind of like an overall issue that I think affects everyone outside of prison as well as the captives inside of prison, I think the bigger issues are a total lack of transparency within the prison systems. I mean, um, we have a better idea of what's going on in places like North Korea or even the CIA than we do in the prisons or jails that are blocks from our home or, or miles from our homes. You know, and like, for example, in this country, we don't even know how many people the police kill every year. I mean, that's just such a basic lack of data that, that it's so stunning. And then the bigger issue beyond that is beyond the lack of transparency, you go to the next step, which is lack of accountability. People are murdered by prison officials. Uh, we have corrupt prison officials. Uh, we have people being brutalized by the prison system. And that includes the employees, too. They, they generally don't make any big distinction between the prisoners in their captivity and the staff and their employment. Um, they're all treated pretty poorly. And, you know, and even with all that, you know, you have a total lack of any type of accountability. And uh, even when... In most parts of the country, state prisons, for example, consume up to 25, 30 percent of entire state budgets. At the local level, 
running the police state as far as um, policing jails and courts will consume up to 50, 60, 70 percent of local budgets. Um, you know, these are huge amounts of money that are being spent on the police state that in reality only benefit a few people. I, I think the bigger problem, too, is the fact that most people are pretty unaware of this, and they're pretty much unaware of how the police state and mass incarceration affects them in the direct ways that it does. For example, I hear a lot of people complaining about their students loan situation and how much debt they have from going to college, yet no one no one is really noting the fact that starting in the 80s and, and accelerating in the 90s that almost every dollar that went into building new prisons and running the prison system came from the budgets of higher education in most states. So if you're a student and you're complaining about your um, student loans, well, part of the reason is for that is because the money that would have been available for your education or your tuition was instead used to build prisons and employ prison guards. And, and you know, and that's the thing about policy choices that are being made that affect everyone. And generally, the corporate media in particular and the ruling class in general, they do a pretty good job of not making those connections and keeping people ignorant about the choices that have been made that really don't benefit a lot of people and harm and harm a majority of us. Do you have any advice for folks on the outside who want to learn more or get involved in prisoner solidarity efforts? Absolutely. I think if you want to learn more about um, what's going on in prisons, I think you know prisonlegalnews.org is um, probably the best and most comprehensive resource of news um, of what's going on in prisons and jails around the country uh, in the United States. Um, you can subscribe to our magazine in print, which is really good because it helps support us financially, but all of our back issues are posted online. Those are available for free. We also operate a free um, daily email list news service. We also have pages on Facebook and Twitter as well in terms of what's going on. So the next step from being informed, and this is the context that we've never been a publication where we just try to tell people what's going on and get everyone all depressed and bummed out, where we say, wow, everything really sucks. And so we try to, we've, we try to couple our news reporting and our advocacy journalism with basically seeking progressive change and going beyond that. There's a lot of groups around the country that are doing everything from uh, helping report what's going on in prisons to supporting individual prisoners uh, to actually participating in different campaigns. The Human Rights Defense Center, which publishes prison legal news, uh, we also operate the Nation Inside, uh, which is nationinside.org. It's a multimedia platform which hosts, right now I think we've got over 30 campaigns doing everything from trying to prevent the shackling of uh, pregnant women while they give birth to bringing about sentencing reform in New Mexico, parole reform in Virginia. Our centerpiece campaign and our very first campaign was the Prison Phone Justice Campaign, which can be accessed at phonejustice.org, which one of the things we've been doing with this campaign is seeking to get the Federal Communications Commission to cap the cost of prison phone calls, of prison and jail phone calls. In fact, our final um, I was late coming here today because we're, we're busy finalizing our final comments that are due tomorrow with the FCC. And I think that one of the things is that for a lot of the stuff, people just every plain old ordinary people can and do make a difference. I think that a lot of people think that uh, because we live in a police state, uh, we're largely powerless and the ruling class doesn't pay attention to us. And for the most part, it's true. We don't have any say in what's going on. But one of the things that we can do though is we have been able to achieve a lot of victories and wins you know along along the way and right now it looks like the FCC is poised to 
limit and cap um, the cost of prison and jail phone calls. And one of the reasons they've done this is because over 10,000 people, ordinary people like us and people inside, have written to the FCC telling about the financial exploitation, the suffering they've, they've suffered by being gouged uh, by these outrageous um, prison phone calls. And the reality is that for most people, the idea of paying $18 or $20 for a 15-minute phone call is pretty outrageous. I mean, no one outside of the prison context is paying that kind of money for a phone call. And our position is that people inside of prison and those outside of prison who want to maintain contact with their loved ones shouldn't have to. And it's telling that of over 10,000 people have commented to the FCC, the only people that want to uphold the status quo are the telecoms and the prisons and jails that directly financially benefit from that arrangement. So there's a lot of ways to get involved. There's a lot of issues that affect people. One of the things about mass incarceration is it doesn't really matter where you live. There's something going on there that's affecting you and the people in your community. And if there isn't anything going on at the local level, then this is a time to start something. You know, as I think as the comrades say, you know, if not you, who, if not now, when? We have a lot of information at prisonlegalnews.org. You can learn a lot more about the Human Rights Defense Center at www.humanrights.org. Um, and we're pretty accessible. And we're based in Lake Worth, Florida. If um, anyone's interested in volunteering, we also have stuff that needs doing in our office. We also have assorted research projects that can be done um, from a distance in the event um, folks have computer research skills and stuff like that. So thank you very much for having me on the show. These interviews offer a glimpse into a fascinatingly diverse and active anarchist scene that has flourished in a small town over the past many years. Yet in some ways, we've also just scratched the surface. Beyond the projects we discussed, Lake Worth Radicals have also been active in organizing TWAC, or the Trans and Women's Action Camp, gatherings. They've set up a land trust structure to provide stable, low-cost housing for activists. They've collaborated with Seminole and other indigenous communities in environmental justice and anti-colonial organizing. They've undertaken difficult conversations about white supremacy and privilege within their communities. They've networked with radical activists all across the state of Florida. And through it all, they've cultivated a playful, critical, culturally vibrant radical community through art and dance and performance and more. We offer you this profile of one particular local anarchist community, partly because we think the people and projects there are interesting and broadly relevant, but also because we want to encourage all of you who are living in smaller towns to expand your ideas of what could be possible. You don't have to move to the big city in order to participate in a culture of resistance. Reach out and find others who are passionate about destroying and creating, who want to see a different world and are ready to take action. Write to the To Change Everything tour and set up an event in your town. See who shows up and figure out what kind of affinity you might have together. Network with other radicals in your region, even if it seems like you're few and far between. Seek out advice from others who are trying to get things off the ground in smaller or more conservative areas. If we're going to change anything, we really are going to have to start everywhere, including wherever you're listening to this.
So let's wrap things up with next week's news. We'll start with a couple of appeals for support. First, from our friends at New York City Anarchist Black Cross. Kevin Cianello received a two-year prison sentence for his participation in the G20 protests in Toronto in 2010. Kevin, aged 18 at the time, got a heftier sentence because he attacked a cop car with a canvas bag full of rocks. He is also presumed to have fueled and sustained a fire set on another cop car. Fortunately, Kevin has just been released from prison in Canada. However, now he faces financial hardships, along with his friends and family members who took on significant financial burdens throughout his trial and imprisonment. With that in mind, New York City Anarchist Black Cross has organized an online fundraiser. To donate, visit youcaring.com slash Chianella. That's C-H-I-A-N-E-L-L-A. Please remember that prisoner support doesn't end when a comrade is released. Whether through halfway houses, supervised release, parole, or probation, there is usually state supervision beyond the initial sentence. Also, prison is traumatic, and recovery from the experience can take a long time. And, of course, there is the stigma of being a former prisoner that affects nearly every aspect of one's life. All of this adds up to the often overlooked but equally necessary support our comrades need for life after prison. For more information on Kevin and his case, visit notorontog20extradition.wordpress.com. Also, folks from the Blood Orange Info Shop in Riverside, California, are seeking support after a break-in where their collective's money was stolen and their door broken. If you want to learn more about the Blood Orange or toss them some support, we've got the link posted on our website. It's gofundme.com slash save the info shop. As this episode goes to press, what's the term for a podcast? Anyway, uh, as we're finishing this up, the Rebel, Rebuild, Rewild Eco-Anarchist Action Camp is taking place on unceded Algonquin territory north of Ottawa, Canada. We hope to hear report backs from that. And just around the corner, the 2015 Earth First Round River Rendezvous is taking place in Vermont in the first week of July. Here's the announcement posted on the Green Mountain Earth First website. Have you ever dreamt of finding yourself curled in a hardwood copse full of glacial erratics beneath maple and ash leaves, listening to the inquiring twitter of the oven bird and the soul-stirring and strangely nostalgic harmony of the hermit thrush's song, or jumping into a deep green glacial kettle pond, or sharing stories of encounters with the wild, of nearly averted disasters, and your heart's deepest desires for freedom and insurrection around a fire with comrades? Well then, this is your chance. If you've never been to a Round River Rendezvous before, then know that you are in for a real adventure. They generally consist of a week of workshops, trainings, storytelling, music, and poetry. There are opportunities to hear updates on campaigns and struggles from all over the continent, time to connect with lots of amazing folks during the week, and bond during the post-rendezvous action. Keep your eyes out for a public action call-out. The 2015 Earth First Round River Rendezvous, hosted by Green Mountain Earth First, will be held on occupied Abenaki land in so-called Vermont, July 1st through 8th. The ancestors of today's Abenaki are the original inhabitants of what is now Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, and Southern Quebec. The word Abenaki is derived from Wobanakik, which means dawn land or eastern land. 
Many of the people organizing this summer's gathering are currently involved in a campaign to stop a fracked gas pipeline under Lake Champlain, the largest body of water in Vermont, and also home to beluga whales. The process of collective liberation has been a challenging part of the last several Earth First gatherings. The intention for this Round River Rendezvous is to firmly root our work together in growing truly intersectional movements. We're excited to continue to address questions of how to build from past conversations. We recognize that the same violence that permeates our relationships with the Earth permeates our relationships with each other and ourselves. Eco-liberation equals biocentrism plus deep ecology plus anti-oppression plus solidarity. We cannot confront the forces destroying the earth without confronting the systems of power destroying subsistence cultures and exploiting people of color and other oppressed groups around the planet. What are the ways that we can heal ourselves and continue working together in solidarity while dismantling systems of oppression? We are excited to extend an invitation to learn from, lend our strength to, and deepen the ties of solidarity and love for the collective future we are dreaming into being. No compromise in defense of Mother Earth. Check out greenmountainearthfirst.tumblr.com for updates and directions. Please contact us at gmef at riseup.net with any workshop proposals, questions, or anything else. And finally, we want to announce some recent and upcoming prisoner birthdays. Take a moment to send these folks some mail and lend them support for their ongoing and courageous struggles against state repression. On June 12th was Maya Chase, the last remaining member of the NATO 3 still in prison, activists entrapped by police during a 2012 protest in Chicago. On June 25th, Abdullah Majid, a former Black Panther framed for murder and imprisoned for the last 33 years. On June 28th, Tom Manning, anti-imperialist prisoner from the United Freedom Front. And on July 10th, Gary Tyler, who has spent most of his life in prison after being framed for a self-defense killing when a racist mob attacked his school bus as a teenager. As usual, you can find the up-to-date mailing addresses for each of these folks on our website, crimethink.com slash podcast, as well as links to find out more about their cases. And that'll do it for this episode of The Ex-Worker. Thanks so much to the wonderful crew of folks from Lake Worth for speaking with us, to Underground Reverie, as always, for the music, and to each and every one of you for listening. On our website, crimethink.com slash podcast, you can find more info and links about everything we discussed, plus a full transcript of all you've just heard. We've got some exciting episodes due to arrive in the coming weeks, including more discussion of Rojava, a profile of an occupied anarchist cafe, insurrectionary histories of the American South, a discussion of animal liberation, and plenty more. So stay tuned. Till then, catch you on the flip side.